and welcome to the Night Gallery podcast. My name's Chris Brown. We are on episode 18, which means we're in season two now, properly. Hence the uh, slight change to the um, theme music at the beginning. I uh, also made sure that we phase out before they did that really annoying 1970s TV show thing of introducing who the stars of the show are. Um, the opening... Well, it... The opening for this episode is the strongest story in this episode. It's uh, The Boy Who Predicted Earthquakes. Uh, it was first broadcast on September 15th, 1971. This is the first four-story episode um, that Night Gallery does. It, um, it's a Rod Serling script, um, and it's based on a short story by Margaret St. Clair. Now, this overall overarching episode is a good example of the way um, the new format was done for season uh, two and how that worked. In an attempt to give more creative freedom in production and in the writing elements to the story, so the episode could actually kind of grow, you know, the, the episode could grow, the stories could grow naturally, the uh, scripts were pre timed and um, then uh, fitted together as a jigsaw so that they could know exactly where everything stood. So, um, basically, so in this example, uh, you'd have the boy who predicted earthquakes would be, was the fake main bit. And then that was initially twinned with the, uh, well, the third story in this episode, which is the hand of Borgus Weems. Um, but what would happen was, unsurprisingly, some of these stories would uh, run short, so or run run long, and changes had to be made to to fit the very specific hour-long running time order. And um, Jack Laird decides, in his wisdom, that um, he would make short stories that fit it, very very short, jokey little filler segments that um, would fill in the set, fill in the running time. Um, so what would have been a two-story episode became, in this case, four stories. Um, I would say that it, it does dominate what happens with the, uh, the, the way people feel about Night Gallery. Um, these shorts are poor. I mean, I've mentioned them before. Um, they, can, they are a bit notorious in truth. Um, we'll get more to it when we reach them. In actual fact, there's only 14 of these short segments that were written and, and were placed in the stories. They're not, they don't dominate as much as people think they do, but on the other hand, the first episode, in this case, has two of them. And I think that's kind of marked the card of the series somewhat in some critics' minds. Um, they weren't loved by the network. They weren't enjoyed by Rod Serling. The audiences appeared seemingly didn't like them. The fans are still quite wary of, of some of them. The, the quality does vary, um, but on the whole, they aren't particularly great. They're very campy. Um, the only person that seemed to really like them was Jack Laird, who was the, obviously the executive producer, and um, he had an awful lot of control at this stage in what was happening with the show. Um, to move, but before we get onto those kind of those issues and, and a bit more of the Laird v. Sailing um, story, which we will do uh, next week, um, let's concentrate first on this story: the boy who predicted earthquakes. You're most welcome in this particular museum. 
There's no admission, no requirement of membership, only a strong and abiding belief in the dark at the top of the stairs, or things that go bump in the night. Example, tonight's first painting. Small boy encased in a crystal ball, born with a very special gift. He can prophesy. But you'll wonder, as we look behind that picture, if a prophecy is always a gift, or can on occasion take the form of a nightmare. The painting's title is The Boy Who Predicted Earthquakes. And this is The Night Gallery. So that's, um, well, basically our story is about Herbie Bittman. He's ten years old, and he's been asked by a New York TV station to present a show. And the reason why? Well, Herbie's got a very impressive skill. He's able to predict the future. Now, initially, our uh, our network executive is a little bit unsurprisingly perturbed about the predictions that he uh, that this man can do. This lad can do mainly because a he doesn't believe him. He feels it's a bit of a gag, a bit of a joke, and he thinks that he, the damage that 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 could cause. Um, what I would say is that um, Herbie is its delivery is quite unusual. He just sits in front of camera and give talks about his his life and what's happening with him and obviously being a ten year old boy he's interested in some quite uh quite tall stuff and then suddenly just flicks on and gives quite alarming predictions. Slate in three, two, one, audition tape number three twenty three, the Herbie Bittman show. Action Hello, my name is Herbert Bittman. I've been reading a very interesting book. It's called the Calamani Crystal. I feel that anybody might enjoy it. I've also begun a book on astronomy written by a man named Duncan. Reading this book has made me want a telescope. My grandfather says that if I work hard and get good grades in school, I can have a small telescope at the end of the semester. That's what we're going to need to find you, you know. After I kick you out of here. Telescope. About 15 minutes from now, Gwendolyn Box. That little girl who's been lost in the Sierra since Thursday will be found. Her leg is broken, but she'll still be alive. After I get my telescope, I want to become a member of the Society of Variable Star Observers. It's a club where everybody You're takes turns and watches the You are putting me on. You weren't intending to program this. Mr. Wellman, the boy is unerring in his predictions. Ask Mr. Godwin here. Oh, I should ask Mr. Godwin. If you could just control yourself for a moment, Mr. Wellman. I guess that's all for now, except tomorrow morning at about one minute till six, there'll be an earthquake in the Los Angeles area. It'll be fairly sizable. That's about all I can tell you now, except there'll be some damage and some fatalities as well. I'm sorry to have to give you this kind of bad news. Well, basically after that, the uh, the network executive is unsurprisingly only really interested in him once while watching a, a film he discovers what actually happened is that really our man um, our lad Herbie can predict the future that little girl was found and then the earthquake happened we then uh, jump a year later to a world where Herbie's a star um, he's made like a hundred amazing predictions all of which have come true and now has become the subject of a university study 
by a Dr. Peterson. Um, we learn very little really about the lads, except the fact that he can only predict things that are happening in the next 48 hours. Um, as he's going on stage for this that night's um, big predictions, he uh, he bottles it basically. Says he doesn't want to do it. Says he wants to leave, and um, it's only well basically he gets um, pressured to go on stage and finally decides that he does want to do it. But at the he's uh, there's no predictions coming until right at the end, and Herbie gives the biggest prediction he'll ever give. He says that he he now sees that there will be a new world, uh, one without pain, suffering, where everyone will be happy. Um, that new world order will start basically tomorrow and um, everyone to celebrate. It's going to be an exciting new thing. We cut to some uh, very oppressive... Overview shots of New York, and you can hear cheers and the work and, and, and cheers and the traffic stops and people celebrating the, the seeming new discovery that everything's going to be great and happy again. Um, but not everybody appears to be that happy with what's going on. The Dr. Peterson is troubled. She seems to, she knows that, um, the 48-hour thing is playing on her mind and how could he possibly know exactly what was going to happen for that length of time? How could he see the new millennium when only he can see two days in front of him? Well, she goes to see Herbie in his, in his flat with his grandfather and uh, Herbie tells her that he wouldn't have known exactly what it was but except for his astronomy book that he'd been given by his father that um, he knew the truth now that the sun was going to go nova and explode in the next hour well the next morning and the world as they knew it would no longer exist and he was only saying those things to make people happy before the end um the story is quite a powerful tale. It's um, it works because at its centre, I suppose, is a, a young child. It was uh, directed by uh, John uh, John Badham, who is uh, the brother of Mary Badham, who directed uh, *To Kill a Mockingbird*, that classic nineteen uh, fifties movie. Um, what he gives to the to the show is um, it's a great looking segment. Um, you're looking at it like, you know, there's those incredible helicopter shots over New York, early doors when everyone's celebrating. It's, um, it really feels that Night Gallery at this stage is a bigger production than it was for season one. It, it's got a good, good, good deal of weight to it. Um, as we keep on talking about episodes, uh, we're going to keep on mentioning about obviously the Jack Laird and, um, Serling arguments start coming to play a lot. Um, this occasion, the script was pretty much as the final draft was when he submitted it to the studios. The only real changes in the set and staging um, at one point are um, 
well, the the TV exec is watching um, a episode, well, a film. It's Island of Lost Souls, the nineteen thirty one uh, black and white horror. And he's watching that when he hears the news about uh, the girl who uh, was found with a leg broken. Um, the original just had him in his office. It's it's a, it's a good change. I think it's just Laird is, has a um, a real affinity with um, like the old mon- movie monsters, those classic Universal. There's something that he comes back to in all his short, very very short stories. There's vampires, werewolves. That's the kind of thing he's interested in. And I think this was just a nod to those kind of classics within the Night Gallery, kind of given a um, a nod back to where the Night Gallery's heritage was. Um, a lot of the stories in season two are based on 1920s like twisted tale anthology stories that were adapted, and we'll go into that a little bit later on. Um, but um, you know, so I think you know he knows where the heritage is for this, and I think that's shown in that film. Um, what you know, I think it works really well. For one reason is because of who is with Clint Howard, who is the uh, the little boy. Um, so uh, that's Ron Howard's uh, brother. Um, he kind of gives a very haunted performance to his story. Um, it is um, it's quite well. It's quite a uh, you know. It's a, he looks very sad when he needs to at the end, but also quite uncanny in the way he deals with the uh, situations that he's in. Yeah, um, for me, like Clint Howard is very much like well, he's the kind of guy who is he looks like like uh, an adult when even when he's ten, he's always got that kind of haunted look about him, and that's something obviously that's continued with him through uh, through his career. He's been in quite a few uh, character roles over the years. Um, the uh, in terms of the production, it went okay, it went well. It was a little bit uh, well. The only real problems he had was with the ending. Um, it, you know, as you've watched it, uh, you see the um, the son uh, basically looks like it kind of engulfs the grandfather and um, the, the the young lad in its light. Um, they tried to do it by rear projection, didn't work. Looked a bit awful. It did look awful. And then apparently they, they so what they did was one of the camera guys basically just got the strongest light he could and just shot blares it right at the camera to kind of so it looked like you know as um, it looked like it you know it, 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 it enwrapped them in its warmth and its heat, um, which is a really good way for it to work. I feel like, you know it, it, I mean I think it's a really powerful story anyway, and I think that kind of the direction is where it really works as well as the very strong. Uh, performances within it. Um, it is, I think, for uh, you know, the script, the Rod Serling script is uh, for me um, very, very haunting. But also, I mean, it feels like it feels like quite nineteen seventies ish, like kind of apocalyptic uh, nightmare doomsday scenario that you can do nothing about. But um, you know, the, it's gonna happen, and. Um, you know, just try, I suppose, in a sense, it's just try and be happy with, with your loss. Um, we're going to talk, well, it's, it is the strongest story in this particular episode by quite some margin. Um, I think it, it's, an, you know, I, it, it's one of the ones that very much like in uh, the first season, 
everything kind of went to plan. It didn't really kind of get messed up. Um, I will say this, though. I mean, your man, um, your director, uh, John Badham, he was lucky because he was struggling to finish that, that shot with the, at the end. And the only reason he got the job in the first place was because William Hale had been fired by Lerda because he ran over schedule and since Aunt Ada came to stay. So in that sense, you know, the, you know, once again, there were real pressure cooker Starly production schedules and, you know, the worst thing you can possibly do was run over. And it's understandable in the sense with this second season because they basically went straight from the first almost immediately, well, it was immediately, into trying to get season two sorted out. Um, and obviously, you had Jack Laird be sitting over everything, rewriting scripts or doing the work he needed to do to try and get together, trying to put all the episodes together. If anything went wrong, it could feasibly be absolutely disastrous for them. Um, and then, you know, but... All the strength from this, the quality here, is about to completely go out the window because of the story that comes afterwards. But we'll deal with that next week. And just some quick housekeeping. Thanks as always to Tom for help for hosting this. Um, if you want to get hold of me, you can uh, use get me on Twitter as at orange underscore monkey. Uh, there is an email address uh, nightgallery at the twilightzonepodcast dot com. Um, you can get to our website, DimensionX Radio, which is DimensionXRadio.com, along with Tom's Twilight Zone podcast, which is still brilliant, really great fun, really well put together. Um, there's also uh, DimensionX Radio uh, episodes and also uh, Suspense. And if you've never uh, listened to Dimension X before, you should do. It's absolutely fantastic. Great 1950s sci fi serials. Um, it's it's the kind of thing that I've listened to odds and sods like the suspense as well. I've kind of listened to the odd episodes here and there. So it's been a real privilege to be able to just sit down, uh, you know, subscribe on the podcast feed and just listen to them as and when they come up. And they are fantastic fun, really well written. And even though it's minty fun for all the family, there's a dark edge to them as well. Um, also, uh, I mentioned a few episodes ago, uh, Luke Owen, who is Bodica Films, uh, who's on the collector's room. Um, they, I said they were doing uh, radio plays and uh, I was quite excited about that um, the first one's out now it is quite graphic it's uh, good fun loads of great great gory scrunchy sound effects um, it is a great little episode it's like it's nice and tight 17-18 minutes long and it's uh, I really enjoyed it um, if you want to look at that there's a link on the article section on dimensionxradio.com it'll send you straight through to um, that clip on the collector's room I mean there's a button at the bottom anyway for, for, to their website on our on ours so um, if you want to have a quick look at that that I mean I, I really would recommend it um, next week is going to be interesting it's Miss Lovecraft sent me it's uh, well the actual story is timed at 3 minutes 32 so don't expect a particularly epic episode from that one. Although what I do want to talk about next week is a bit more about the relationship between Jack Laird and Rod Serling and um, also a bit more about these buffers. Um, I think they're kind, of, they're kind of important because for a lot of people have tarnished the Night Gallery and um, unfairly, I think, to be fair, um, although they totally do kind of rip you out the story, 
They're not as bad as people make out, and they are quite short. So, anyway, we'll deal with that next week. Um, and we'll see what we can do for you next week. Thanks a lot, and um, I'll speak to you soon. Take care. Bye.